0: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. The so-called scramble for Africa began in earnest in the 1880s, when European powers started competing to extract valuable natural resources like timber and ivory. These days, it's the mineral wealth of the continent that's being pillaged, uranium and cobalt, the stuff we need in our mobile phones, and electric car batteries. We're calling this episode Conflict Minerals, and it's appropriate that we're making it at the end of Black History Month because black history matters. Gavin Harper of the University of Birmingham touched on the thorny issue of mineral extraction in the Naked Scientist podcast, Electric Cars. Worth the charge? Cobalt largely comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. The conditions in which it's mined would cause a lot of concern. Children that are working in mining and a sort of unregulated industry that runs alongside the sort of mainstream mining industry. With me to discuss conflict minerals are Pierre Shouten, senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies and a specialist in the politics of Central Africa. And Christopher Wadibia, an honorary PhD scholar here at the Wolf Institute, who is researching aspects of religious practice in Nigeria. Pierre, Gavin Harper was putting it mildly, wasn't he? Give us an impression of this sort of mining in the Congo.
1: Thanks, Ed. I think many people have the image uh, of conflict minerals in mind, and and they think about near slavery-like conditions. Brutal warlords, perhaps. Uh, Now, in my experience, things usually work a bit different. Uh, For 10 years, we've tried to map the links between conflict and minerals in in Congo. And what did we find? I think that only about a third of artisanal mines has any armed presence. And if it is the case, most of it will involve the Congolese army and not rebels. What do we mean when we say artisanal mining? What what does it actually entail? I think it means that they rely on on little technology, which is, after all, uh, quite expensive, and instead use a lot of manpower and rudimentary tools in most of these mines. Now, the advantage is, of course, that this kind of mining absorbs a lot of people, and it does provide a modest income for literally a million Congolese and their dependents, of course. Now, obviously, this makes for hard work, and it takes tough people. I think in Congo, too, artisanal miners are tough people. They live in very rudimentary conditions and often have a very short time frame. You know, having spent a lot of time in Congo, I can get wary about the kind of child labour question because obviously we don't want our phone to pay for child labor, but women and kids who don't work in mines, but for instance in farming, also break their backs. So, so what is then at stake in the focus on child mining? Uh, is it our conscious or is it social uh, economic conditions in the Congo?
2: Christopher. I would say that. The, the juxtaposition of conscious and the um, the economic considerations, I think that's one of the central uh, juxtapositions of importance when you look at this issue of, of conflict minerals and conflict resources, generally speaking. I think it's also important, and you highlighted this, that we place as central the perspective of the the local indigenous actors you, you touch about the um, the children and the and the families and the mothers who if they're not able to work in mines they perhaps have to go to work on the farm I think it's important that we that we privilege the right set of actors when it comes to this kind of con- conversation because I, I I don't want to engage or, or allow for this this place perhaps of this kind of neocolonial thinking that privileges global north perspectives when at the end of the day, we are we are really bystanders that um are kind of benefiting comprehensively from the uh this situation. So I think just as, as a quick point, it's it's centrally important to privilege the experiences, the the economic situation of, of local indigenous actors who, at the end of the day, they are they are the on the front lines of this issue. But should we simply observe? I mean, is that what you're saying,
0: Christopher? We should simply observe and see what kind of to put it bluntly,
2: exploitation is going on and allow that sort of um, damage to happen locally? Well, I think the first question that comes to mind is who is we in this situation? Who is we? Uh, Because when you get into the consideration of the international community and how they can perhaps intervene I um, As someone who studies Nigeria, and if you look at what's going on in Nigeria at the moment with the, the NSARS campaign, there's very much this idea of mobilizing the international community to put pressure on the Nigerian government to reform its police practices, to alleviate the police brutality that is taking place, and from kind of a more structural perspective, to reform the mass corruption and embezzlement that takes place. But I'm a firm believer that there must be a, a domestic will that takes place within the branches of government, amongst the people. I think that external actors can only do so much. I think this consideration, this question really is about how can we find ways to support domestic actors that are in the thick of it, whether they be in government, whether they be activists, whether they be intellectuals, academics, policymakers. I think, yes, the inter- international community should intervene. But I think in a delicate way, that privileges domestic actors and is quite sagacious in how it goes about uh, engaging with this process. Over to you, Pierre.
1: Yes, it's a it's a difficult set of questions. And what it reminds me of is, I think my own frustration in dealing with artisanal miners uh, who are faced with formalization efforts in Congo and the pressure of industrial mining, which is uh, likely to push them out of the kind of areas where they are allowed to mine today. And noticing that the kind of timeframes with which artisanal miners work, everyday survival, getting as much as I can today, means that it's very difficult to agree with them. So so I totally take their side and I root with their interests, except that they have a very different perception of, of what needs to be done. Most artisanal miners are really fiercely committed to freedom as a basic notion. So many people speak about slavery in artisanal mining. I like to speak about freedom, which drives so many people uh, into this, this kind of very specific lifestyle of of moving around, being able to pick up your stuff uh, whenever you want, and living this kind of rough frontier life that we associate perhaps also to the gold rush in the US a century or so ago. So if this is the kind of commitment that people have towards freedom, day-to-day survival, then it's very difficult to engage with them uh, around long-term development. Does that apply to Nigeria, your area of expertise, Christopher?
2: Oh, 100%. Absolutely. I was waiting for the question to come. I I would say that this issue uh, in Nigeria in particular about short-term, and Peer, you articulate this brilliantly, short-term benefits as opposed to long-term developmental interests. This is central to this idea of Nigerian development, generally speaking. So my research looks at how faith-based organizations engage with development, uh, and in particular, Pentecostal churches. And one of the interesting questions that arises when you look at these mega churches that engage with development that are, you know, respectively worth billions of dollars, is they're always uh, harrowed with various criticisms. What I always like to kind of retort with on this issue is, you know, if you take the faith-based actors out of the equation when it comes to development, what are you left with? You know, when you look at the modern development enterprise, much of it was actually initially generated through the missionaries, colonial missionaries who started promoting Western education and healthcare uh, in, in Nigeria, for example. But you also see this trend throughout Sub Saharan Africa. My, my simple calculation is when it comes to uh, faith based actors in particular, if you remove them, what is the alternative? Because one of the profound similarities between Nigeria and the Congo is that you have largely ineffective government structures. You have high levels of government corruption, and these government and state agencies are not delivering the development services that they should be to their populations. So kind of going back to, as Pierre mentioned, this idea of short-term versus long-term rewards, how do you incentivize a people who, at the end of the day, they're just trying to eat? They just need food to eat. They need food in their belly. They need we're talking about basic sustenance here and then so for development actors coming and talking about oh education uh macroeconomic development and almost it seems quite irrelevant to them and for me it gets back to this idea and i think this is really central for this whole conversation to be privileging the experience and the needs of local populations the the front line agents who are suffering the most and presumably peer the role of um
0: faith-based actors, both in South Sudan and also in the Congo, are absolutely
1: um, central to this conversation? Yes, I think it's a fascinating question. And I think it depends a little bit on how you take that question. I think religion is really strong and it's central. It's much more alive in Congo and South Sudan than it is perhaps here. I mean, I live in Denmark, which is a relatively secular country. And even in the kind of most remote artisanal mines, there's priests, ambulance priests who walk between one remote mining site to the next. And people really wait for, for his arrival. And, and they, they really want to share in this kind of collective religious experience. And I think that convictions about good and bad, questions of cosmology are really central to how people understand the way that they, they live and make sense of, of their predicament. That also means that some of the friends I have who are maybe urbanites in Congo, they are very uh, Marxist in their outlook of religion. They will say uh, religion is an opium of the people because uh, in remote villages, women in tattered clothes will carry uh, the kind of only bunch of bananas that they have yielded uh, in a week. They will carry it to the church and bring it to, to the church leader during the week's service. And it is true that in many special rural areas in, in Congo, people affiliated to the church behave like uh, other local elites would in a sense that they say that the love of God goes through my pocket that you have to contribute in monetary terms to the church for to get God's uh, set. So you see many of these kind of, uh, of, of situations happening. Well,
0: I suppose that's the um, prosperity gospel um, logic, isn't it? Um, which, which is not uncommon in, in the Pentecostal churches, both here and in the UK and, and overseas as well. Let's move on from the faith actors um, and the need to let local actors as well manage the issue. But what should we in the West be doing? Um, I mean, are we simply outsourcing damage um, caused by these developing technologies
1: here? Oh, absolutely. And I think you really nailed it there. There's a lot of talk, for instance, about uh, the green transition and how uh, a transition to low carbon technologies would in fact make us dependent on rare or critical minerals uh, that are sourced from largely unstable countries, really. But in fact, Most of the minerals we use in these kind of smart or green technologies aren't that rare. What's really at stake, the reason we're really outsourcing their extraction and transformation to to other countries, is because of the uh, environmental, health, and social costs involved. If we produce rare earths, uh, now often sourced from China and neighboring countries, in Europe, uh, the costs would be prohibitive, and and so would the costs of the technologies that we like to purchase at, at low prices. But by turning a blind eye... By configuring supply chains essentially not to care, we are able to obtain these uh, kind of coveted resources uh, while having others essentially deal with the mess. I think most people in the Western world are very much aware that the clothes they buy at H&M have some kind of social cost in another part of the world, and that the technologies that they consume do have this kind of environmental and social uh, cost elsewhere in the world. But somehow it feels very difficult, I think, to assume agency over the world we're in, and to find spaces which we can make a mark. This is Naked Reflections, and I'm Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Pierre
0: Schouten and Christopher Wadibia, and we're discussing conflict minerals. It's worth remembering that mining can be a highly disruptive activity wherever it takes place. Here's Jan Silias of Imperial College speaking in the Naked Scientist podcast, Bouncing Bombs and Blacksmiths. I think maybe we should take a step back, and just look at the the scale of the mines we're dealing with nowadays. The copper mines we're talking about treat literally tens of millions of tons of rock a year to produce hundreds of thousands of tons of copper. But within the mine, maybe only 2% of the rock we mine is valuable mineral, and the other 98% is waste. Would you agree we have form in Africa when it comes to disruption?
2: Christopher? Well, I think when it comes to this idea of form of disruption, I think it's important to kind of very much examined the genealogical history, uh, continentally speaking, when it comes to Africa. And speaking from my experience in Nigeria, I think this should begin with acknowledging the colonial dimension. Nigeria was actually a transaction, historically speaking. Uh, The World Niger Company, which was uh, led by Sir George Goldie, when you look at how Nigeria went about receiving its independence on October 1st, 1960, Nigeria was... uh, essentially offered its independence. It didn't have to fight. And one of the difficulties is because of the manner in which uh, you you think of the Berlin Conference in the 1880s, which essentially led to the carving up of of Africa, it put together uh, within the Nigerian context, all of these disparate ethnic communities that largely are their own entities. And I think that when you look at it from a contemporary perspective, one of the difficulties is how do you forge a sense of unity out of these ethnic disparities, out of essentially this large tribal amalgamation that in many ways have their own interests. And you look at the Nigerian Civil War, which in many ways was fought over this precise issue in which Biafra, the Igbos, uh, sought to separate from the rest of the the Nigerian state. And it's more recent, of course, in Sudan, isn't it,
0: with the civil war between the North and the South here?
1: Yes, it is. And I think that, again, resources were at the core of the conflict there. Although histories of oppression, actually not not just uh, decades, but centuries of oppression of southern Sudanese are definitely very important uh, there as well. I think the whole idea of the the state of South Sudan is perhaps the best uh, illustration of the, the politics, if you will, of natural resources in Africa, because it would never have been Feasible for Western donors to contemplate supporting South Sudanese independence if it weren't for the oil uh, deposits which lie uh, under its uh, uh, national territory. And the idea was really to forge out of the flow of oil by redirecting the flow of oil, uh, not through Sudan, but having Su- South Sudan control that flow of oil itself, was to really forge a nation and build it out of the oil profits in South Sudan itself. Now, obviously. That experiment has gone uh, awfully wrong, because if you create a state out of a resource which is, which is so volatile, then obviously the kind of political superstructure, if you will, that you build around it will will also be marked by that volatility. And if you, if you look today in South Sudan, you see the effects of a kind of weaning of a, of a young state of this oil dependency and uh, a desperate fight to find other kind of uh, resources which could fulfill the same role.
0: Uh, absolutely fascinating. Are you discussing this in your new book, Roadblock Politics?
1: So, Roadblock Politics. Yeah, the title I think says it in itself. is about the politics of this very banal, everyday, and very nimble kind of object or practice, if you will, the roadblock or checkpoint. And and for people who have travelled in Africa, it will stand in their recollections uh, very clearly. It's a nuisance which is everywhere, which is every day, and very banal. And people in Congo uh, have always told me that these are very big nuisances. But I, I never really dug into that question until in 2013, some of my friends in Congo told me that the beer brewer Heineken was paying upwards of, of 1 million US dollars a year to a certain rebel group via checkpoints. And that really started to get me thinking, like, if this is just one company and one rebel group, what if you would look at all rebel groups in Congo and all companies or or aid agencies uh, for that matter? And it turns out that the kind of imbrocation of local conflict economies in Congo with global trade, if you will, is much more complex than just minerals and involves very much local control over the conditions of circulation, of movement, of access in Congo. And the same goes for Central African Republic. So we've mapped a total of over a thousand roadblocks in both these countries. And the book is really an effort to come to terms with the importance of control over circulation in places where control over territory and people is just simply not so feasible. And you see that actually Going back in history that before colonial regimes took over these places, uh, African uh, communities forged power and and polities out of the possibility to uh, disrupt trade routes. It was like one of the key premises of state formation in Africa.
0: And the management of people is something that you've looked at, Christopher, as well, in terms of how companies,
2: mining companies and others, actually, if not control, then house their workers. So I remember when I was... Um, doing my, some research in, in Nigeria, and I was in the Lagos area, I remember being around the Leki a region, which is actually where a lot of these protests uh, at the moment are going on regarding the NSARS campaign and, and what have you. And I remember going by the Chevron headquarters. And what's fascinating is just outside the Chevron headquarters, you see thousands of indigent Nigerians. But then once you go on to the comprehensively demarcated and uh, securitized uh, campus of Chevron, One of the first things that I noticed when I got onto the campus was, you see, you know, little Caucasian children playing in the street, and you feel like you're in a different country. Chevron, for example, they have their own medical facilities, they have their own security apparatuses, and you very much feel like you're you're in a different state. And so I think some additional questions here that immediately rise are the question of capitalism and the question of extraction. And you look at how this interplay of these multinational, capitalistically inclined corporations are engaging with Africa and how essentially they're allowed and a- enabled to build their own states within these African states in order to facilitate these processes of extraction, um, which largely have to do with conflict resources. Um, oil in Nigeria, of course, is the Supreme resource because it is responsible for between 80 and 90 percent of the Nigerian economy. In addition to that, uh, an important question is what are the responsibilities of these uh, these oil companies, these multinational corporations, that are so rooted in these communities, perhaps when they cause difficulties and, and they have negative uh, repercussions? So you look at oil spills in Nigeria, and you look at shell in that um, that, that kind of history in two thousand and thirteen, there was a very high profile case that went uh, to uh, the Netherlands in The Hague regarding shell, in which there were five claims brought against. Shall in the Niger Delta region in Nigeria. And all four of those claims were dismissed, but the fifth one was granted. And so there was some sort of compensation issued to residents of the Niger Delta. But what's fascinating about this is that the Niger Delta residents and the activists that helped to support and make sure that their, their claim received popular attention, they couldn't trust the Nigerian legal system. So they had to take this to Europe. They had to take it to The Hague. And I think This also highlights the importance of making or ensuring that legal institutions, political, economic institutions function at a, I would argue, a a commonly suitable level globally. Earlier, you touched on this question of in the West, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just stand to the side? And what I would do actually is highlight the UN Global Compact, which is basically this idea of business Uh, all around the world needs to be socially mindful business. And I think, actually, one of the great contributions that the West can can make is in facilitating this global rebranding of business practices. Um, And, of course, that must include the Global South, but ensuring that all business that is done is socially mindful. For every barrel that is mined of oil in Nigeria, a kid needs to be sent to school, and it needs to be a quality education that they receive. I think there needs to be some sort of equity when it comes to um, how we engage with business going forward.
1: Pierre, would you agree with that? I think it's a, it's a really fascinating conundrum, and uh, I, I'm actually very happy to to fully disagree with Chris because I think one of the basic premises of the kind of global extractive order that we're seeing uh, in the world is going against the very grain of this of the social compact, and the social compact is basically not much more than blue washing because companies will never be held to account, and and they can't. I mean, as I pointed out before the break, the kind of regulations and requirements to mining that we have developed uh, to protect workers and the environment in the West mean that it's nearly uh, impossible to make a profit out of mining uh, there. And as Timothy Mitchell has pointed out, uh, miners historically also formed very troublesome political forces that were able to exert political pressures because they could disrupt the flow of minerals. Now, to work around these issues, we have manufactured uh, a system, I think, that relies on global supply chains and entailing that places are inserted into this kind of global, global economy based on uh, a comparative advantage, if you will. And uh, in technology and energy supply chains, poor countries willing to forego regulations and forego these kind of developmental uh, these de- developmental pacts, if you will, have the comparative advantage of willing to sacrifice people and the environment for uh, the kind of short and medium-term gains associated to mining. Nonetheless... I mean, mining is still significant for, for countries like Australia. But I think the bigger question is, is mining or the extraction of oil per definition destructive? Yes, it's a brutal process, of course. Uh, it's carbon intensive and often with nefarious effects for the environment. But what, what if the problem lies elsewhere? What, if, what is at stake here isn't perhaps so much the technical side, uh, but the way in which our global economy primes us to expect cheap technologies and to replace them at an extraordinary rate all the time. This raising this kind of virtual limited demand for unregulated extraction. Chris, would you like to come back on that? Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. And
2: I, and I thank you very much, Pierre, because I think you raised some very important points about the manner in which, even yes, the the UN Global Compact has been issued. But to what extent is it being followed? Uh, to what extent is there enforcement power? My priority uh, as a scholar and, and, and as a as a reformer, perhaps, is working within the systems that are in place to promote increasing levels of sustainability. Yes, you're 100% right to argue that a lot of these corporations, they have so much money, they have so much power and influence that they can just circumvent this red tape that has no enforcement, no power to make sure that they actually engage with these ideas promoted by the UN Global Compact. But I would actually argue that a number of these corporations and these these actors, the churches that I study, these are corporations. The church that I study has branches in 198 countries and is easily worth a number several billion dollars. But in 2019 alone, it invested over nineteen million dollars in CSR projects just in Nigeria. And it is doing its bit to engage, but at the same time, I think this brings up this issue of mandates. What are the mandates of these actors that we're talking to? A corporation such as Shell, their mandate is, i would pump one would probably argue, to, to bring in revenue for their shareholders. J- I get that. Just like uh, the state as a, as a corporation itself, its mandate is to promote the welfare and interests of its citizens. The churches that I study, their mandates are to evangelize. I am particularly interested in finding ways to accommodate all these respective mandates, but with this evolving and increasing accommodation of sustainability, of understanding the fact that if we don't take care of this earth that we're living in, it's going to increasingly impede upon the the welfare of all particularly when you look at the size of population and you look at population growth and you look at uh, migration and all of these different issues. These corporations, you're not going to reform them or challenge them, I would argue, by seeking to humiliate and blame and use a polemical language against them. I would argue that the only way to bring them to the table is to understand that these corporations, they have an interest in doing CSR, not on this massive scale, of course, because that would largely go against a lot of the activities that they engage in. But there's a reason every corporation has a CSR department, even if it's for PR alone. And so I think these are considerations that we have to be mindful of and understand that we're not going to reform, I would argue, the system of capitalism that we find ourselves in. It's here to stay. We're not going to reform it comprehensively, but there are steps that we can take to see to it that we're walking in the direction of creating a more sustainable world, even if it's baby steps rather than large leaps.
0: Well, I think you both fulfill the uh, Nigerian singer, Enenka. Don't think you're not involved. Clearly, you both are. Thanks to my guests, Pierre Schouten and Christopher Wadibia. We'd love to hear from you at nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know where we're going wrong and perhaps also what we're getting right. And do give us a rating. If you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back next week with more guests.